All right, Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 25. And the, the, I had a tough time figuring out a caption for a title for this message because this is a, it's a unique couple paragraphs in the scriptures. But I think what it shows us is what, and what we've already been prepared through our songs, uh, that God really is bigger than everything that's going on around us. And in his hugeness and in his control and superintending of everything that's going on, he is preserving the advancement of the gospel. He's preserving the advancement of the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus to save us from our sins, to save us from God's wrath so we can be in his presence and have the spirit dwell in us. So in the death of Herod, we're going to be thinking about how God uses that to describe to us that he's preserving our witness for Jesus. He did it with the early disciples, and he he is faithful to continue it with our lives as well. So let's look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, From Jerusalem, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Lord, help us, by the power of your Spirit, understand what you want to convey about your glory, the protection of your glory, and the protection of our witness, the preservation of our witness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes there are strategic lessons that we come across in the Scriptures, and the stories in the Bible, um, you can look at this and think, why? Is this just some type of retribution that God was exacting on Herod because he took James out and then Peter is delivered and then he's embarrassed and so he is, uh, he's condemning the, the guards to kill them and now he's going to Tyre inside. What's the point of this little story? And sometimes it can see that There might be possibly a disconnection in the story flow and stuff, but Luke is purposeful because the Holy Spirit is purposeful to convey a strategic importance about God and about people on the earth. There are several lessons to be learned in this short account of God's judgment on Herod. It is judgment on him, but there's also comfort to be gained by a young church in the first century and also all the church from there uh, there on that we can, we can have comfort in the fact that God watches over his mission to protect his mission. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says this, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Look, Herod was judged, verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. So what does this mean? Giving God the glory? Is God waiting around? 
All right, just first moment you don't give me glory, you're done. Worms in your belly, done. What, what's he conveying? But think about it in this way. Is God right to protect his glory like that? And not give it, not share it elsewhere? Or how about this? Is God selfish? Is he a a megalomaniac? Is he an egomaniac only looking out for himself and angry with anybody that doesn't give him glory? No. Let me try to explain this. God is perfectly right to protect his glory for two reasons. One, he is the most exalted being that is. So if God did not protect his glory, that means that something else might have more glory than who he is, and he can't do that because he is the most exalted being that exists. He's God. So for him to not protect his glory would actually make him less than God, and he can't be less than God. Now, how about this? Second thing. When God protects his glory, he's doing that for our good because our greatest satisfaction in this life is to share his joy. And when he knows I need to be number one in your heart in order for you to experience my presence and my joy, because think about it, when somebody else takes glory for themselves, it robs, it steals joy. We don't get to experience joy with that. We actually have this weird response. Like, why are you taking that glory for yourself? Why is it not shared? We look to share it. God wants to share his glory. So God, being God, protects his number oneness. And he protects being the center of our lives because he knows that's what's best for us and that's when we experience the most joy. So it is right for God to protect his glory. He's actually not being selfish. He's being selfless because when he does that, he's allowing us to, he's bringing us in to receive his glory. God's power and glory are protected and guarded by him alone. The church can trust his power that advances the mission even amid death and persecution. But also in this chapter, chapter 12, and that Sean took us through last week, we, we have death and preservation. James died, but Peter went free. Why didn't, why didn't God do a miraculous angel coming and to release James from prison? Why is James killed but Peter goes free? We don't know. We have to trust that God is doing something to guard his glory and also preserve the mission going forward. God is bigger than any threat to our lives. He's bigger than any physical threat. He is bigger than any spiritual threat. The the gospel is not teetering on whether or not Herod can cut it off. And, And remember, Herod's dad's the one that killed the babies when Jesus was born. This Herod is trying to trying to figure out how to protect his own throne. There's no spiritual component. The church is not, we saw it because of their prayer. They're not, they're not scared. Oh no, that everything's gonna be snuffed out and the gospel's gonna be ruined. Nope. God's bigger than any spiritual attack. And God is also bigger than any threat to our lives emotionally. He's bigger. And while we don't know why James was killed and Peter was preserved, we have 
what it teaches the church and us, that Herod may have shown that he had power over James' life, but here God is showing that he's got the power over all of life. And remember, like Sean brought out last week, uh, the different uh, essence in the first century language, the different thinking about time. You have chronos and kairos. Chronos, chronological. It's it's a sequence of events that happen in order. I like to think that way. Kairos is a moment of time. It's our time when a football team, it's our time, let's go right now. It's a kairos moment, not a... All right, in, in the third quarter, that's chronos, but... Here what we have, we have two things happening concurrently. Herod is judged in real time, while the church learns a lesson of God's powerful oversight and preservation of his mission in this moment of time. While something happens physically, something else is happening spiritually. And remember earlier in Acts when Ananias and Sapphira, they, they provided a healthy lesson for the church to walk in honesty and integrity. And this passage serves to remind the church that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble as he guides the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. This passage is strategic for gospel advancement. The warning of pride is an ever-present warning in the life of the church, generation after generation, and for the world. But also, the witness of the church will only move forward in humility. Pride cuts it off. Humility drives it forward. So here are some observations that we see. I think I have, what, five? Five observations that we see in this passage. The first one is that God rules the entire earth. This is not a story for the church to be glad that Herod got what was coming to him because he killed James. God rules over the nations of the earth. And he brings judgment upon them because of their pride, particularly their refusal to honor him as God. The story reveals that Tyre and Sidon, coastal towns, were at odds with Herod, which made life tenuous because they got their food from Herod. Oh, oh, we shouldn't have made him mad because now he's not giving us grain for bread. It's old. The old lesson, don't bite the hand that feeds you. This is literally, you just totally bit the hand that feeds you. Tyre and Sidon, here they come and they persuaded this Blastus, the king's chamberlain, his his trusted personal attendant, to give them a chance. Can we make it up to Herod, please? Herod, looking for all the glory, says, yeah, we can do that. Let's go there. I'll have a parade and I'll take, take my seat and I'll do what... Kings do, and they'll worship me. Now, the judgment taken out on Herod was to have a correcting tone upon Tyre and Sidon as well. God was telling them, you trust Herod for food, and that's not where food comes from. I feed the earth. You should be trusting me. So all of it was a correcting tone. Tyre, Sidon, you don't honor God as God who is the giver of all things and life itself. He's the one that provides for you. You did not honor him, so watch out. The guy that you were worshiping is nothing. And he, he quite literally dies before their eyes. There is a, a prophecy in Ezekiel 28 
that if you go through, it's against Tyre and Sidon. And many Old Testament theologians uh, and, and Christians through the ages will look at what particularly Ezekiel says in chapter 28 as uh, reflective of Satan himself in heaven before he fell, that pride was found in him. But as, as you read through it again, you actually see what Herod was doing. He was taking glory for himself and all the splendor and all of the everything, just like Satan did. And when Satan comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden, it's exactly what he's looking to tempt her with. You don't have to let God have all the glory. You can take some for yourself. And it's pride. And it gives birth to every other sin. Herod should have done better, knowing the Old Testament prophecy to Tyre and Sidon. The second observation that we see is that Jesus rules on his throne. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus helps fill in the story with some details that Luke uh, didn't include. And, And Josephus says that the robe that Herod wore was woven with silver. It was woven silver so that whenever he moved in the sunlight, it glistened from every angle. So in essence, he was glowing. With the sunlight, the sun's rays glistened to where he was glowing. And he takes his place on the throne and he gives an oration. These are three things that kings do. Well, Herod says, I'm the man in charge. I'm doing this. So he dons that royal robe. He seated himself on the throne. He delivers an oration. He's our kingly for sure. But he didn't recognize how Jesus is the only one that does those in perfection. Jesus is the one that is clothed with a white robe of purity and righteousness and holiness. And he is seated on the heavenly throne, the only throne that exists. All the other ones are are pitiful imitations of authority. Jesus sits on that glorious throne and Jesus delivers an oration. What is it? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only one that is reserved. It's for that throne. He is the only one worthy of the honor and the worship of that type of throne and that royal robe and that oration. See, Jesus wears that white robe that we read is dipped in blood. I'm not sure how that looks sits on that eternal throne and speaks life to us. Herod was sitting in the wrong seat. And we see as we work through this that another observation is that praise, worship, is for God alone. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they gave supernatural affirmation to Herod, not the voice of a man. This is the voice of God. That's supernatural. And we need to reserve those types of superlatives for their appropriate uses. When we say something is awesome, when we say something is great, not everything can be great. Hot dogs sometimes can be great. Sometimes. But if we, if we use those words, even for our own souls, we use those words so much for just little things, they lose the weight when we, when we apply them to the Lord. And so we want to apply the superlatives to God that he deserves and he's worthy of. But also we learn 
that in this praise that the people of Tyre and Sidon are giving Herod is that they're going after a faulty negotiation. They're trying to negotiate for a peace that will not bring them what they need. And oh, this is church, this is a lesson that we need to learn. Because our negotiations for a faulty peace a peace that's not everlasting, a peace that's not grounded in Christ will lead to faulty praise. And there are nego- we are tempted for those negotiations in our lives all the time because we want peace at any cost. And so we want a, a father who just quiets the house that leads to a faulty praise because his children look at him not from a love and respect, from, but they are giving honor out of fear. That's a faulty praise. A boss who exercises authority uh, incorrectly and, and harshly and diminishes other people is looking for this weird affirmation, a looking for a worship. So negotiating for that peace will lead to faulty praise and praise of man, not God. When we praise Jesus, that's when we get his eternal and lasting peace. So let's not negotiate for what we see in front of us and for a quick, and, and which ultimately ends up a lot of times being a faulty peace. Let's look for Jesus' eternal peace to show up. And now I think the biggest lesson that we see in this passage is that God opposes the proud. When, when Herod did not give glory to God, he was struck down. He was judged in that moment. And given the seriousness and the immediacy of God's response to Herod, we can put together that his heart was proud. He did not give that glory to God. He really believed he was supernatural. He believed he was a God. And we need to be careful with anyone who demands worship on this earth. And it's, I think what usually happens is that the worship that's demanded usually uh, expresses itself in an unequivocal loyalty. You need to be loyal to me. If people are looking for loyalty too harshly, they're probably looking for praise. And they're proud. We see that the angel of the Lord struck him down. Same exact word as the angel striking Peter on the side to get up. So God's in control. He's doing both. He get up, I'm preserving this, uh, get down, you're proud. Peter was struck as a sign of deliverance from bondage. This is a, a reminiscent of what Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus was struck on the cross in our place so we could go free because we trust him. Herod is struck as a sign of divine judgment because Herod trusted in himself, not in Christ. See, either Jesus is struck for us or we will be struck. We have James 4, 6 that tells us, this is the brother of Jesus saying, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this opposition we see here is not, it's not something passive where where God is sitting back and just, I'll just oppose. No, this is active opposition. He's moving against the proud, pushing against them. You're not going to get that. You're not going to have your way. 
Even though it looks like they're gaining ground in their pride. Nope, God always has it under control. But he opposes the proud. Luke 20, verse 18, Jesus says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Look at that. When, when This is going back to either Jesus is struck for us or we will be struck. See, we fall on the stone, Jesus will be broken to pieces. Meaning, in our brokenness, he puts us back together. We're not trusting in ourselves. It's a full surrender. But if anybody is proud and that stone falls, it will crush him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's come to that stone and let's be broken upon him to be built up and and strengthened and sustained by God's grace. In Mark 8, verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples to be be aware and and to beware of the leaven of Herod. He also says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of heaven. Uh, of Herod, sorry. He says he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We know from Scripture and historical documents that Herod, the whole chain of them, from the dad Herod and then the nephew, this, this son and then a nephew rises, Agrippa, all of them are ruthless. To, they're, they're tyrants that will stop at nothing to protect their position. So Jesus warns his disciples of that type of pride because the disciples had an issue of arguing with one another who, who was the greatest. And they weren't promoting each other. You know, I think you're really you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. And they're like, guys, I think I'm the greatest. No, you, and they would get in arguments with Jesus walking a little head on the road. They're getting arguments. No, I I'm told you. Jesus told me this. He didn't tell y'all that. He took me over to the side. He told me that I am the greatest. Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, beware. Beware. Now, this occasion, they forgot the bread that Jesus had just miraculously, miraculously fed everybody, and they brought like one loaf. And they're looking at each other like, oh, man, we only have one loaf. Not that, oh, Jesus is here. He can multiply it. Nope, that was nothing. They were like, why didn't you pick it up? They were arguing with one another about whose responsibility it was to pick it up because they all thought they were better than to pick up the leftover food. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, hey, beware the Pharisees who in their self-righteousness that, you're, that they were feeling, oh, we're, we're too good to pick up the leftovers. Beware the leaven of Herod that will go through whatever it, it takes to protect that position. Because they were going to be angry, and attack one another. Pride will cause us to run with what we think God is saying while neglecting our hearts. That's what the Pharisees did. They thought God was saying something to them, and they established these rules to protect that, but they weren't paying attention to their hearts, and that's why Jesus had to keep on saying, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Pride will cause us to glory in ourselves, glory in our contributions, and also glory in our needs. I have some needs, and I need everybody to meet me where I am. That's just the same. It can be boasting. It can be pity. But when we glory in ourselves, when we pay more attention to ourselves than God, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we really do love God. But it's from this deficiency. Pride is thinking more about ourselves 
than about God. Period. Which then leads to all sorts of sins. See, pride is the thing that we think everybody else is guilty of. We think everybody else is proud, which really should tell us, oh, I'm proud. We have to be careful. There's a pride in position. There's a a haughtiness of being high or a pitifulness in being low. But that pride in position will will oppose the gospel advancing in our hearts first and also in our lives. And that brings worms. It brings things that, that, that attack and they don't, they hamper and they stunt the gospel going forward. We read that Herod got sick with a stomach, probably some stomach ailment. I, I'm, I don't think it was worms that literally came out of the ground and then got up and ate him. That would be really powerful if that happened. But I do think as Josephus helps a little bit, he had a stomach ailment that five days later he died from. But it could have been that these were intestinal worms. And they balled up and they were like, now's the time. You're gone. God opposes the proud, but most importantly, he gives grace to the humble. And we see this in verse 25. We are back. Well, verse 24, that God's in control. While it looks like uh, the church is, is we don't know what's going to happen and we're not sure the direction and oh no, James was killed and we got Stephen that we remember and what's going to happen? Nope. Even in the midst of this type of persecution and threat, the word of God increased and multiplied. Humility does that. And it's shown with Barnabas and Saul. They've done their journey to Jerusalem to take the gift of the upcoming Famine that was prophesied by Agabus. And they completed their service and they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is a cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas is just looking to include people. Barnabas is such a wonderful picture of humility. We've seen the humility in Barnabas by going and finding Saul to bring him to the work in Antioch. And now we see him go out and get his cousin, John Mark. Come, be a part of this. That's how the gospel flourishes. That's how the gospel increases and multiplies. When we don't look for somehow it needs to be done our way, we just simply gather. Let's do this together. Let's walk in this together. And we have the promise from James 4.10 that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. You know what happens during that? As we humble ourselves... We, we create the capacity for Jesus to be exalted in our hearts and through our lives. We shine as lights for him. We, we let our good works shine before the world and they glorify God. That's Matthew 5, 16. That's just coming to mind. Let your good works uh, shine before men that they may glorify God in heaven. So there's a looking at us when we are humble and surrendered. We, we create this capacity for Jesus to be exalted. Now, this is the awesome thing about how God shares that joy with us. He says, as Jesus is exalted, because we have the Holy Spirit in us by faith in Jesus' work, we are then exalted with Christ. We are lifted with him. And so the joy that we long for is found when we humble ourselves and think ourselves nothing 
think of ourselves appropriately, but that means this. Just stop thinking about yourself. Love Jesus with everything you are. And as Jesus is exalted in you, you will find God does something where you experience the joy of that exaltation as well. Not that you're turning around going, yeah, people are looking at me. No, it's all centered on Jesus. This passage is to teach us, humble yourself before the Lord. Now, it's interesting. I heard a pastor describe this years ago, and I think it's accurate. We, in the New Testament, we're never told to pray for humility. It's a command. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. It's not one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5. But we are to humble ourselves. Which means we have the grace to do it. And we are to obey in doing it. And it just, look, it, it means thinking about God more than we're thinking about ourselves. And if we're thinking about God more than ourselves, we're going to think about others more than ourselves. And that's the whole law and the prophets, right? When Jesus, somebody came up to Jesus and said, what, what's the purpose of the law? Can you just like synthesize it for me? Sure. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all the law and the prophets are built upon those two things. The Ten Commandments are built upon those two things. So we humble ourselves by loving God, loving others. Let's be obedient with that. Let's humble ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from uh, being eaten by the worms of pride. Lord, I pray we would give our lives away. We would give our lives away, seeking your glory, trusting that you are working your goodness in everything that we do, in all the circumstances of our lives. We humble ourselves, Lord. We humble ourselves to exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Kerr. Well, um, humble yourself. Can't get away from that. Now i got to come do the announcements. Um, so one of the ways that our church believes that we can live out the Great Commission, which is we say it every week, go and make disciples. One of the ways that we do this is through what we do in the life of the church. Being together, doing things, celebrating things. Um, so I just have a couple of announcements. Um, one of the ways that we do this is, if you notice, there's boxes in the back. Every year we've been doing this thing called Operation Christmas Child. How many people have done it before? Raise your hand. Okay, if you haven't, it's really cool. You grab a shoebox. There's a little paper on there that gives you an idea based on kids' ages and stuff. And you fill that box to the brim. I've seen rubber bands wrapped around it, duct tape, and all that stuff. You know, you can see, it's amazing what you can fit in that if you go to the dollar store, by the way. DG, DG loves Christmas, Operation Christmas Child. Um, but um, if you take a box, take it home, one, one, parents, one of the best ways that you could show your kids the act of giving is to bring your family together and go shopping for someone else together. And let them pick it out, whether they're small, whether they're a teenager, it doesn't matter. It's just a fun 
gig. You could fill that box for about $15. It's not expensive, but there's a, there's a catch. We need it by next Sunday, okay? Next Sunday, uh, Monday morning, the next day, I will go deliver it to the Covington Baptist Church. That's where we drop it off, and they ship it out, and it goes to kids around the world to, one, number one, to share the gospel with them, and number two, to show them by giving gifts what God has given to us, how he gives us the greatest gift. And so it is a great Christian project. It's a great reminder of what Christmas is really about. As we, as we heard today, which I love the sermon, Christmas is not about us, right? We celebrate the God who came, and we delight in that. So please grab a box on your way out. Grab two, grab three, grab five, grab whatever you want. Um, and just bring them back next Sunday. I'll have the table back up there, and you just, when you walk in for church, you just stack it there, and then I'll take care of the rest, okay? So it's real fun and easy. Uh, the second uh, announcement, next Sunday, also, we have our church Thanksgiving dinner. We get to celebrate gluttony together, okay? <laughs> I love Thanksgiving. I eat it like five times in a row in one day, and then I have to take a nap, but one of, one of the ways, like I said, is we, our church, one thing I love about our church is that we love being together. We love being around the table. We love displaying Jesus by the way that we eat around the table. Jesus ate around the table with a lot of people. And so I want to I encourage everybody, if you have neighbors, if you have family members, if you have friends, invite them to the dinner. Whether they come to this church or not, that's besides the point. But just to bring the people that you know around people that love God and eating around a table can do something to them. And so even I, I'm, I'm practicing what I preach because I canceled youth, our youth group, and I'm inviting the youth and all their parents to come. Half our youth go to the church here, half of them don't. So I would love for their parents to come and do that. And so all you do is you make your favorite dish. We're going to meet here at 5.30 in the evening, and we're going to have the table set up here. And then we have the food all set up there, and we are just going to feast and just celebrate being thankful that God, the only reason this church exists is because of Jesus Christ, and that's what we celebrate. We are thankful that by God's grace, me and Jeff and everybody here, we get to bless each other. We get to love each other. We get to shepherd each other. We just get to be part of the family. And here's the cool thing. We'll be together forever. So if I aggravate you, guess what? It's for all eternity. Um, So... Uh, number three and third announcement I have is December 6th, we do this twice a year. We have a church family meeting, and this is a time where we get together as a family, a church family, to celebrate the year past, to look at our struggles and the things that we need and the joys that we have, and then also our future vision for the following year. And so we invite everybody here at 7 p.m. on uh, December 6th. And we're just going to, me and Jeff are going to come up and kind of share what's been going on, share the things that we see, and share what we feel like God's calling us to. And we want you to be a part of that and just hear what your church, your church has a mission. Our mission, as we say it all the time, you see it in the bathroom. When when you're using the bathroom, you see it. We say it all the time here. We want to see Jesus Christ preeminent in our people. We want to see Jesus first in you. If, if anything that you do in this life, and, then, and when, when we pass away and we're standing before the throne, and Jesus looks at you and says, you made me first, what joy would that be to hear that? And then, then by the grace of God, we just get to lay down our crown 
before him and say, I still make you first for all eternity. So a family meeting is going to be an awesome time. Last one was awesome, so please, everybody come. And then uh, real quick, two other two announcements. The 215 Tribe Winter Retreat will be December 30th. We'll talk more about that. If you know a youth, invite them. If you invite them, I will try my hardest to make it free for them to go so they ain't got to do it. And the way that we do that is we do that as a church family. I have a jar in the cafe. If you'd like to donate to the 215 Tribe Youth Retreat, last year y'all did awesome. Y'all literally paid for our entire summer retreat. By God's grace, the church stepped up and paid, and we got to invite others because of that to make it free for them, and we went whitewater rafting, and uh, it was awesome. Uh, So the winter retreat will be at the barn, uh, which is in Bush, Louisiana, and so we're going to have it all set up for them, and we're just going to be a one-day event where we press on with the Lord and spend time with the youth and kind of catapult our new year. And then the next announcement, uh, the last announcement I have is women. This is for the ladies in the house. And let me tell you something. I've been on multiple retreats before. God does something special on retreats. When we get away for the sole purpose of hearing God's voice and going after him, stepping away from our life, kind of retreating, keyword retreat, and just spending time with him, God does something. So this year, the, um, the ladies' retreat, which is, I believe, January 12th through the 14th, is that correct? Oh, there it is. That's a pretty picture, too, by the way. Um, it's going to be in Florida. It's going to be a weekend. The reason we've announced it right now is because the earlier you sign up, the cheaper your hotel is. Okay, so the, the, the retreat center is, um, oh, it's in, it's in Alabama, sorry, Orange Beach. Got confused, Alabama. So you sign up the retreat, I think, $75 for the actual retreat, if I'm correct, Kathy. I think, I think that's what the website said. And then if you book your hotel by December 19th, you get it for like $100 a night, which is cheap, okay? I bought a hotel to go see my daughter in Indiana. It's like $250 in Indianapolis. It's like, this is ridiculous. But ladies, I want to encourage you, okay? The women that will lead that retreat will bless you. And being, a part, being with the ladies of your body will bless you. It'll be a time to really feel the presence of God, draw in your heart, and just move in you. Um, so I want to encourage you ladies, talk to your husbands. Husbands, give your ladies time to go. Watch the kids, take off of work, do what you need to do to let your ladies go and be with the Lord and be surrounded by maybe hundreds of women that love the Lord and let, them, let the Lord bless them that way, okay? So let us stand for our benediction. I know there was a lot of announcements. Uh, if you use the QR code, um, you'll, you'll have all those announcements and more information on each one. I love you guys. I really do. I, I, I could linger here and just look at y'all because y'all are awesome. Um, this, this church is special, guys. I, think, I, I really believe the Lord is doing something in us. He's got, some, he's got some big work in the moment that we are right now. And so, okay, Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be humble and be blessed.